Before we jump into the message, um, I want to just make a quick announcement. So this last week, um, our Johnson County government put out a call for help from churches to care for our homeless friends and neighbors. You know, Project 1020, um, where Jim and Jennifer are so instrumental and many of our folks volunteer, they're authorized to do um, over, have overnight guests, uh, cold weather shelter, um, but folks have to kind of find a place to hang out during the day at public libraries and businesses in town. And with a holiday weekend coming up, many of those folks uh, are going to have no place to go. Those places will be closed while it's dangerously cold. And so we're pretty worried about where people will go. So they are asking churches to pitch in. And um, so from 2.30 this afternoon until Tuesday evening around 6 p.m., Redemption Church um, has been designated an emergency warming shelter, which means for the next 48 hours, we're going to need four or five people to be at the church at all times to help um, care for our um, most vulnerable neighbors. So we need everyone who can to take a shift and come volunteer. This will also probably likely involve some sort of overnight thing. So if you like to stay up all night, um, it can be an adventure, you know. Um, uh, you can be part of that as well. We agreed to make space for 20 people during the day and 8 to 10 folks overnight for the next couple of days. And to pull this off, it's going to take sort of all hands on deck. So if, um, you, if there's any way you could spare, we're doing two-hour shifts. If there's any way you can spare a couple of hours in the next few days to come hang out. Um, please do. Mandy is right in the back. You can look back there if you don't know Mandy. She is. Um, she has a sign-up sheet, and um, before you leave, if you have a moment, um, hop by there and sign up for a, a time to serve. But also, Jim and Jennifer, thank you for serve for all you do with 1020. It's really, really amazing. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, and then I have one more thing. Yeah. You know, that's up to you. Can you. The question is, can you bring children? It's not a great environment for kids, but if your kids can roll with things and you're like, no, they'll be fine. I, I trust you guys to make that decision. Also, we are running low on towels. So if you have um, one or two used towels that you wouldn't mind donating to the church, um, you can drop those by anytime as well because people will be taking showers. So, um, so we're in the season of Epiphany during which we tell these awesome stories about the life of Christ from the Gospels. And we ask ourselves, what is being revealed in these stories about God and about us? And how should we respond to the stories if we want to be faithful as the people of God? And so that's really epiphany. It's a season of revelation and response. And our story today that we read earlier comes from the Gospel of John. And it sounds kind of ordinary, like unremarkable. Unless you really dig into it, and there's, there's a, this deep symbolic meaning to what's happening. And if you really kind of plumb the depths of those symbols, um, what Jesus says and does becomes incredibly powerful, even for us today. It begins, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So John's like the leading prophetic figure of his time. The whole country 
has been coming out to see him and, and to hear his message of repentance, which is this word metanoia, which doesn't mean feel sorry and promise never to do bad things again. Metanoia means turn around, change directions. That's what John is doing. He's calling people to repentance, and then he's, he's sort of pointing people to the Lamb of God and getting out of the way. And so John is sending his followers to follow Jesus. It says, when Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, what are you looking for? Which Jesus always seems to be asking us. And we almost never have like a coherent answer. They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and see. And come and see here is not like a like 30-day free trial. If you don't like it, you can bring it back and get your money back kind of a deal. It's not like a marketing thing. He's just saying what, what I'm talking about, what I'm trying to present here it will sound like nonsense, like the wisdom of Christ has to be experienced. It has to be lived to make sense. You have to come and see. It's not a set of propositions. Um, it's, it's a way of being in the world. So it says, they came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. And one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated as Peter. So Andrew used to follow John the Baptist. He leaves to follow Jesus, goes to get his brother Simon, says, we found the anointed one, the Messiah. And, and for them, this is a very particular thing. Messiah, and anointed one. They will, they will do specific things. They will unite the whole nation to come and fight a holy war and defeat Rome, purge the temple of all the crooks, and then reestablish Israel as a world power and reestablish right worship in the temple. This is what Messiah was to do. Everybody knew this is kind of the, the script. And Simon comes around. Jesus takes one look at him and renames him um, Cephas, rock, in, in Aramaic, or, or Petra, Peter in, in Greek, which wasn't a name that people called their children at that time. It's like if you called your kid Boulder or something, people would go, okay, well, that's kind of... But, but rabbis would often rename their disciples to establish authority over them or sometimes to name some capacity in them. You, you name something to define its purpose. It seems to me what Jesus is doing with Peter. And Peter decides to come and see as well. Then it says, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him about whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. So Philip, Andrew, Peter, they're all from the same little town on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, little town that the Romans had called Julius, but the Jews had called Bethsaida, which it just means fishing towns, a little fishing village. And the fact that they're still using that old Jewish name is actually kind of important. You know, when, when Rome conquered a land, they would rename all the cities, sort of for the same reason Jesus is renaming Peter here, to claim authority over them. So in refusing that name, these guys are sort of openly resisting Rome's authority to, to, 
to determine the meaning of the place in which they live. And there's also this tension in, in the names um, and, and in the dialogue. So Philip, um, Philip says, we found the one about whom the, the law and the prophets wrote. And, and he, then he says, it's Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth, which didn't compute on several levels. For one thing, the law and the prophets didn't agree on much of anything. But another thing is, these guys have this specific narrative about Messiah, what, it's, what he will do, where he comes from, and Jesus doesn't really fit the narrative. Like, saying it's Jesus from Nazareth, Nazareth is saying it's, it's Jeremy from Raytown. Like, that's the one, you know? It doesn't fit the narrative. And so when, when, when Jesus, sorry if your name's Jeremy and you're from Raytown, but when Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him, he said, here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael asked him, where did you come to know me? And Jesus answered, I saw you under the fig tree. Note that. Before Philip called you. Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. These are messianic titles. And um, Jesus answered, do you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. An allusion to Jacob's ladder and the story of Jacob with the angels coming and going. So this is kind of the twist right here. This section, it's packed with these symbols, mostly having to do with Jewish nationalism and the politics of Israel, really. The name Nathaniel means lover, um, or it means God gives. The name Philip means lover of war. Actually, lover of horses, but back then horses were implements of war, and so it just came to be, Philip came to mean lover, lover of war. And then there are these two mentions of the fig tree. Now, the fig tree, we just think of it as like some kind of bush, right? It was a huge symbol of Jewish nationalism that stemmed from their conquest of the promised land. The fig tree was this symbol of fertility and abundance and prosperity, and it also had this um, apocalyptic sense in, in the form. It's a symbol of a big, decisive war and of revolution. In fact, the modern-day Israeli army still uses the fig tree on their patches, on their uniforms, to this day. And back then, it functioned a little bit like the American flag. This, so this reference to the fig tree, it was sort of like saying the stars and stripes, that they would have seen it the same way we see those kind of patches. And um, the reference to the fig tree, it's not just like a benign little, there was a bush that he was sitting under shade. He's under the fig tree, this symbol of Jewish nationalism. And because it, it had this intense nationalistic meaning, it was one of their main symbols. And one that often, by the way, gave them license to kill in the name of God. And, and it's, it's, it stems from a famous verse from Kings that you might recognize. Everyone will live under their own vine and fig tree. Nobody knew this until Hamilton, right? And then, it, then everybody knows it. The, the fig tree was the symbol of Israel owning their own land and thereby flourishing because they have land. And this is what, of course, all nations promise, safety and security, land and prosperity and sustenance. And God is quite concerned with how nations go about um, providing those things. In fact, the next little bit in 1 Kings is about Solomon, who is said to have 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. So there's, there's this temptation 
within that fig tree symbol to think that it's actually a massive army that will ensure everyone can live under their own vine and fig tree. And this, this is what Solomon came to believe, and it was his downfall. So the, the fig tree is this, it's a powerful nationalistic symbol. It's like the stars and stripes. And it's um, about Israel's national life and the promise of prosperity and security. But it was also this temptation to war and violence and nationalism. The rabbis note that actually the first mention of the fig tree in scripture is when Adam and Eve, who are ashamed of their own nakedness, make clothes from the leaves of the fig tree. So it also symbolizes like this temptation to hide, to avoid our own nakedness and vulnerability. And both of these meanings are involved in, in this symbol of the fig tree, our desire for a nationalistic identity and often violence, and also our desire to hide our own vulnerability and nakedness. And the nation sort of promises to solve both of those problems for Israel. And for them, it's a fig tree. For us, it's the American flag. These are symbols of nationalism and conquest and prosperity and victory. And they sometimes give us license to kill in the name of God. And so Jesus sees Nathanael, whose name mean, means God gives, and his buddy Philip, whose name means lover of war, and it kind of poses this question, which is it? Does God give? Is it war that gives? Where does peace and security come from? And Jesus says, here's an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Israelite is a, is a nationalistic signifier. It means citizen of Israel. So it's a civic title, not a religious one. Nathaniel is a true Israelite who has the, the guts to be honest about what he really wants. He is literally sitting underneath a fig tree, longing, just brooding um, about Rome and their occupation, longing for a revolution. He's sitting there thinking, you know, they want to come in here and, and take our jobs and rename our towns and change our language and tax our incomes and force us to accept their way of life. We need a Messiah to come as a general, as a warrior, to put a stop to this. And, and you don't find those kind of guys in Nazareth, out, out in the sticks. By the way, the Hebrew word for Nazareth is um, netzer. Netzer means branch, like a branch on a fig tree. So John, John is just playing this symphony with the symbols here. You've got the fig tree, the nationalist, nationalist symbol of power and dominance and victory and killing in the name of God and hiding from vulnerability and brokenness and nakedness and weakness. And then you have Jesus of Nazareth, this branch or a shoot from the tree of Jesse, all this fig tree stuff. He's calling Nathaniel. God gives, and Philip, lover of war, he's renaming Simon Rock for, you know, you don't really even know what reason yet. And these guys are wanting the anointed one, Messiah, a general, a warrior, and a revolution. And Simon, or, um, Nathaniel knows that some hick from Branchtown is not what they're, this is not the droid they're looking for, right? This is not, this guy is not going to get it done. So, so what does Jesus do in this very moment when he's built, John's built all these themes and it's, it's drawing out their nationalism and their violence? Jesus calls Nathaniel out from under the fig tree. 
to come out from under the symbols of armies and power and dominance and this self-righteous fury and even killing in the name of God. And Jesus just says, come and see. Be my disciple. Come learn a whole new way to be human. One that's so counterintuitive and against your instincts that you can't teach it or explain it. You just have to experience it for yourself. Now, this is what I think. I think you and I, living here in the year 2024 in America, we are living in the midst of a very similar story. You know, the story of America is very tethered to the Christian narrative. Christian symbols and language are woven throughout American culture. And we're still living within this same struggle. Where does peace and prosperity come from? Nathaniel had a fig tree. We have a flag. All of us have a longing for safety and security and prosperity. And, and some, at least, conscious or unconscious desire to avoid nakedness, vulnerability, weakness. And then you have Jesus calling his disciples out from under those symbols to live under a new symbol, which eventually is going to be defined as the cross. And, and this is the struggle. And I think it's the struggle that is still tearing us apart as a society to this day. I think it's one of the most destructive ideologies at work in our world. It's this tribalistic nationalism. I often say that, that um, to my deep sadness, most American Christians are more American than they are Christian. Um, there's this theologian I love, Stanley Hauerwas, who says, part of how you know this is that we raise our children to believe that they have a choice about whether or not to be Christians, but have no choice about whether or not to be Americans. He says, that's how you know Christianity is optional. It's optional in a way that their American identity is not. And, and it kind of reveals what people consider to be ultimate. For most American Christians, it's America. And in a sense, capitalism, the two have become synonymous that has scripted us. It's taught us how to speak and how to act. It taught us what to live for, what to die for, even what to kill for. And this is, this is the power of, of that script of what, what I think is kind of a malignant tribalistic nationalism. And it just has a grip on the American imagination. It's hard for any of us to escape it. But Christ here in this story is calling his disciples out from under that banner to reject nationalism and its violence and to embrace the way of Christ, which is a way of self-sacrifice and love. And, and most people will never do it. I, mean, I, I think even 80, 90% of people who call themselves Christians will never make this shift. And one of the reasons that I think that nationalism is so powerful and has such a hold on so many people is explained by a, a teacher named Richard Rohr. Anybody familiar with Richard Rohr, Red Anabia's work? Okay, a lot of folks. He's, he's really great on this stuff. He's a Franciscan monk and a spiritual teacher. And Rohr describes life as a spiritual journey 
that begins as a journey of ascent, he says. We set out into the world and we start to build our tower, start to rise and to climb and try to conquer. And and in the process, we find a lot of good things, but there are some pitfalls to it. We find identity and belonging, a vocation and calling. We start to establish a place in the world where we can stand. And and this journey of ascent, it's also, it's kind of, it can be a lot of fun. We're in, in that first half of life, sort of oblivious to the damage that we're doing to ourselves and each other as we try to climb this journey of ascent. And, and it sort of fires us into our lives. The problem is the way of ascent is full of these kind of arrogant dualisms. So we're learning the rules of the game and how to win instead of losing. And we're learning some good things like just the difference between right and wrong, but also making these distinctions between clean and unclean and purity codes and morality codes and especially boundary markers that define who's in the group and who's out of the group. And sort of the only way to build community in these early kind of immature stages of life is is to force it through boundary markers and in-group loyalty. And so it culminates in, in a kind of intense tribalism And you can see how that that early journey, the way of ascent, really leads to a kind of naive nationalism most of the time. The way of ascent says, I need a place in the world, like I need a people to belong to and something to do and something to care about. And, And we find this, but it's built on this idea kind of that my group is is right and good and these other groups are wrong and sort of bad. And those who don't conform to our group boundary markers are, are shunned, they're punished and excluded. And, and everybody takes part in this journey of ascent. It's like unavoidable, it has to happen. In fact, if it doesn't happen, it produces what Rohr calls the young fool. This is a young person who never gets initiated into a group. And so they never get to experience their own power, their own goodness, their own potential or sense of uh, a stable self-identity and confidence that they can belong. And so they, they begin acting out, become often antisocial, often self-destructive. So this is, you know, angry, violent, abusive, addicted, that, that kind of stuff. But most people pull this off and they have a blast on the way of ascent. It's often called um, the heroic journey of rising succeeding, striving, competing, belonging, building, uh, he calls it building our tower. It's a time of idealism and almost unavoidable nationalism and often a time of duty and hard work and delayed gratification as well as pretty black and white thinking, somewhat closed worldviews. And all of this confers a, a sense of self-identity sense of who we are and of our boundaries, the boundaries of the self and and a sense of a, you know, a coherent self. But it comes at the cost of tribalism and dualistic thinking and this sort of naive nationalism. And then Rohr says somewhere in our mid-30s, some cracks begin to appear in our narrative, which we mostly try to ignore. But we begin to realize 
that we might be hurting a bunch of people on our climb to the top and leaving people out. And we begin to become aware of our own prejudices and violence. And slowly, we kind of slide into, we begin to experience a kind of crisis. It's sometimes called the midlife crisis, although what he's talking about is probably longer than that, because it lasts a decade, even a couple of decades sometimes. We sort of get tired of ourselves and the games we play to win the game of life. And a lot of the things that used to inspire us seem a little bit boring and pointless. It was the time of inner loss of meaning. It's a time of confrontation with our own limitations and failures and certitudes has come crashing down. We sort of, we've built our tower and climbed to the top of our tower and we look around and think, this is not a tower, this is kind of a dung heap. Like, what did I just do? I scratched and climbed my way to the top of this for what? Like, this, this isn't what I thought it, it was gonna be. And, and, and this produces a crisis, often the crisis is accompanied by um, moral failures, infidelity, just falling apart, acting out. And this is it, this is the moment, like this is the crux move in life, the moment that will make us or break us. And life can go one of two ways from here. The, the, the ascent was about building our tower and climbing and rising, and the next step in the spiritual journey for the Christian is the journey of descent. So for the first half of life, we're building our tower. For the second half of our life, it's about finding the courage, Roar says, to jump off our tower. The problem is, the more successful we've been in the first half of life, the harder it becomes to move on to the next stage in the spiritual journey. The higher we've built our, our tower, the more scary it is to take the leap off. And so at this point, the paths often diverge. And the path that most people take is to sort of double down on their tribalism and try to, to keep trying to rise as high as they, they can in their profession, in their community. People just, they refuse to learn to die to self and to other. And for those who make this choice, they become what Rohr calls old fools. You just don't get it. Stop changing and growing. They just can't let go of everything that makes them feel powerful. And they begin to ignore their own um, incongruence, their inconsistencies, their own contradictions. They ignore the crisis and, and sort of become experts in self-deception. They repress all the tension and inner turmoil and ambiguity and paradox and uncertainty. And they just keep trying to trying to ascend, and they become what we're called old fools. Less and less human. More and more inhuman, inhumane, and dehumanizing in their actions, in their words. And the wounds they've acquired along the way never become sacred wounds, you know what I mean? Wounds that save us. And they just become consumed, generally, by bitterness and cynicism and prejudice. Anybody know somebody like this in their, who's in their late stages of life and you just see the, the, the way they're being eaten away by cynicism and bitterness and prejudice? And, and this is what I think. I think this is the path to nationalism. 
And at this crucial moment, when we built our tower, but then faced or hit this crisis, we're offered an invitation to jump off and engage the way of descent, which is the way of Christ. And at that very moment, what happens in our society is that the nation swoops in with with tribalisms and certitudes and political ideologies, with in-group identities and out-group scapegoats that we can blame for everything bad. And nationalism offers us a path to keep trying to ascend without limits. But it's a path that's rooted in in self-deception. It's foolishness because it's disconnected from the reality that we're all broken and struggling and filled with contradictions. So so nationalism is really just a a way to avoid having to learn how to die to self and to others, to avoid that way of descent and to avoid the pain of of self-criticism and repentance. And this is why I think it's so hypnotic and powerful. And sadly, I think this is a path that most people take. And why it's so painful when we see, you know, our parents and grandparents and friends and neighbors and peers being caught up in in this. And it's like they, um, these lives that had so much promise, they almost start to shrink. You know, they become smaller, less substantial, and sort of oblivious to, to the fact that they are becoming old fools. And what Rohr says, and I think he's right, is, is that the way of Christ is to jump off the, the tower. Right? And as our capacity for self-criticism grows, and we figure out the, the problem isn't just out there, it's in here too, it's within each of us, and it goes all the way down for us and for the groups that we form and even just the cosmos itself. And so this, this crisis usually culminates toward the end in, in the dark night of the soul. And we, and we discover the only way to move on is through a kind of death. This is, this is what Christ is getting at when he says, take up your cross and follow me. It's only, we can only move on through a kind of death. It's a fall of sorts. We have to jump off the tower, trusting that Christ will catch us. And this is where the contemplative life begins. It's the beginning of what many have called the wisdom journey. And here we're no longer trying to win and conquer. We're just just trying to learn how to be human as human was meant to be. And Christ is teaching that the way that we do this is to learn how to pour out our lives for each other, for those around us in love. And love, love is what fires us. Now it's not ambition to rise. Now it's love that fires us into our lives. That's the way of Christ. And love is always a fall. Love is always a fall. Love is not climbing and rising and striving. Love is a fall. And love teaches us to embrace the idea that everything belongs, to engage a kind of radical hospitality and openness toward all kinds of strange others. Here we see... um, loving people and things just for what they can do for us to help us rise and climb and build our tower and begin to just love people simply because they exist 
and because all of life is precious. And ultimately, what we learn to do is how to, to give our lives away in love. Just because we want to see others flourish and find wholeness and peace. And here, this, this path leads to what, what Rohr calls the holy fools, which I love. It's not like the, you know, the enlightened ones. It's fools all the way around here. These are just holy fools who kind of come to this second naivete in their life, where these are the jolly old people, you know, who are like, everything's good, just relax, everyone, take a breath, you know, and because they know that their deepest identity, who they are, they are the beloved children of God, who have nothing to prove, nothing to worry about. It's this return to simplicity, only now, without the nationalism and violence and the boundary markers. And this comes from the imitation of Christ, right? It's, he says, come and see, and this, this happens only when people say, okay, I'll, I'll come and see, and begin to embody the way of life that he embodied and taught as he invited us to follow him. And I'm, I'm convinced that one of the main reasons that nationalism is such a huge power and temptation for Christians in America today, it just has to do with this lack of spiritual maturity in American Christians. They hit that midlife moment and that crisis on their way of ascent and they just keep trying to climb and build their tower and they become old fools who are then just really easily co-opted by nationalism and, and those, the, uh, this powerful ideology that allows them to, to avoid having to change and grow and die to self and to other. And in ceasing to grow, the soul just begins to wither away. It's painful to watch. And in this story, Christ calls us from out, calls us out from under the fig tree, out from under the symbols of nationalism and violence. And his teaching says only a fool believes they can come to wisdom by avoiding struggle, you know? by avoiding darkness and mistakes and failure, by doing it right, by, by never apologizing. And American nationalism, man, it's, it's a, that's what it's about. Avoiding humiliation, never admitting failure or defeat or mistakes, saying we're the exceptional ones, we're the special ones. It's about building that tower and, and then just never jumping off, building it into a fortress instead. And nationalism is just silliness, it's foolishness. It has people stuck in that heroic journey, clinging to dualism and tribalism and enforcing group identity, often violently, by excluding other groups, by blaming them for all our problems, defining ourselves over and against the outsiders who are the real problem, then policing the boundaries and borders fixated on who's in and who's out and who's right and who's wrong and clean and unclean. It's foolishness, it's silliness, it's childishness and immaturity. And it just has a hold of our politics today in our society. And at its heart is this malignant, tribalistic dualism. And I see no Christ in this. 
I see no Christ in this. And I think the reason it has such a grip on so many American Christians is that most of them have never left the way of ascent and just take the fall. Fall in love with life, with the world, with God, with themselves, with each other. And instead, they're just trying to keep it from dying, trying to build that tower and and clinging to their guns and bitterness and sense of superiority. And, and, and nationalism is the perfect ideology to support that move. The calling of Nathaniel. I just love this story. It seems so innocuous, but it's radical. It's this rich symbolic moment when Jesus calls his followers out from under the fig tree and says, oh man, the world is so much bigger. Like, you need to get out and, and live. You're going to have to die. You come to this way through death. But, but if you'll come out from under the fig tree and the symbols of nationalism and empire, you'll see that that's not how the kingdom comes. Armies and governments don't bring about the kingdom. We have to change our allegiance and follow the way of Christ, and then we'll come alive. And if we want to follow Jesus, I think there, there's no avoiding this, this move. Either one of these moves. I mean, if you're in the early first half of life, you got to climb, you got to rise, you got to do all the stuff, that, and don't even don't apologize for it. Like, just go for it. But once you hit this crisis, man, it's only a fall that can save us. And we're invited by Christ to take the wisdom journey to become holy fools, and to discover that being human is more important than like self-image, or power, or prestige, or possessions. And we're invited to learn to rest in the knowledge that we're the precious children of God, and our Father loves us. God couldn't love us any more than God loves us now because God loves us completely. And this will help us to live in radical hospitality to all kinds of strange others. And to learn to live in the space of ambiguity, and mystery, and paradox, contradiction and wonder and awe all of which by the way could be used as definitions for worship this is the life christ taught and embodied and the life to which he called his disciples and it's the life christ offers to all of us if we'll come out from under our fig trees and empires our nationalisms and dualisms and take up our cross and follow jesus but if if you want to do this the only way is come and see. Come and join this way of living. Let's pray. Oh God, pray that we would hear you call us out from under our tribalistic nationalism and that we'd have the courage to, to um, take that fall. Pray for our folks in the first half of life that they would have the courage to build their tower and just go for it and do so faithfully and also compassionately. And for those of us who are trying to take the fall, that we just have the courage to jump and trust that you have us. And that we would walk with Jesus on that journey of descent. That we would come and see and see if we don't come more fully alive. 
We pray that you would walk with us and lead us as we go. Amen. I invite you to stand, please, and we're going to receive communion. And the way we do this is we'll be released row by row to come forward. We'll be offered a plate of bread and a cup. You just take a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup and receive it. As you do, they'll say, um, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can say, I will remember, or however you are comfortable responding. The reason we do this is on the night when he was betrayed, Jesus did this with his disciples. They, they all shared the same cup and the, and the piece of bread. And he said, the, the cup is like my, my blood, my life. And, and the, the bread is like my body. What I want you to do every time you gather is, Take my life into your life. Be made of the stuff I'm made out of. And then go out into the world to be my hands and feet. He said, whenever you gather, do this symbolic meal. So this is why we receive communion. And it's also why we, we don't put any limits. Anybody who calls in the name of Christ can join us at the table. Um, but before we do, let's, let's pray a blessing if you would join me in prayer. God, we ask your blessing upon this bread and this cup. May it be to us a spiritual food and drink, a means of your grace. And as we receive you into our bodies, as we receive these elements, may we receive you once again. Would you come and live inside us? Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?